Well, thank you for joining us for pastor's class tonight. We're going to be looking at the book of Philippians as we continue our study. We're getting near the end of that. We're going to be in chapter 4 tonight. We're going to be talking about the topic, how to be joyful. How are we supposed to be joyful as followers of Christ? I think this passage addresses that and hope that it's encouraging to you tonight. Let's uh, begin with prayer and then we'll dive into God's word. Father, thank you for this time. We can open your word, God. May you allow us uh, to learn from it. May you allow this passage uh, to shape our hearts and our minds to make them more like Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin reading Philippians chapter 4. We'll read the first three verses. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul begins this passage with the word, therefore. And like we always do, we always ask, well, what is that referring to? What is Paul talking about? Paul has a normal order for his epistles where he normally begins by stating doctrinal truths, foundational truths, and then the latter part of his letters normally addresses the practical implications, the outworkings. If we believe this, how is it supposed to affect how we live? Because that's what we believe about doctrine, that if we believe rightly, it's going to translate into living rightly. And if it doesn't, there's some kind of disconnect. There's some kind of problem. Something is wrong with the way that we're believing if it doesn't translate to living differently, to live in light of what we know to be true. So that's true of this book as well. But in the immediate context, he has just contrasted the different ways that unbelievers and believers are to live. Just at the end of chapter 3, he talks about one group being focused on themselves. They're very self-centered. They're focused on this earth. They're focused on temporal things. And in contrast, believers, he says, need to recognize that our home is in heaven, that our citizenship is in heaven, that we are to be focused on eternal realities and eternal things and live our lives looking outward rather than looking inward. So that's sort of where, where we are. Therefore, in light of that. Now, in the book of Philippians in particular, there have been a couple threads, a couple common threads that have run through this epistle. The, the idea of joy has run through several times just in this short book. In this short letter, Paul has addressed joy, he's addressed suffering, and he's addressed the idea of unity. And that's what he's going to talk about here at the beginning of chapter 4. I want us to see how to be joyful. Number one, we need to live in unity. We need to live in unity. If we want to be joyful, if we want to live joyful lives, we must live in unity with other believers. Earlier in the book, chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul reiterated the importance of unity 
and connected unity with mission. That the only way that we can accomplish the mission that God has given us is to stand firm in one spirit, one mind, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, he will continue. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Obviously, the idea of unity in the church was very important for Paul, and it was very important for this particular church to understand and to apply. And so if you just put yourself in in the shoes of the church there at Philippi, they're hearing this book for the first time and they're hearing it read. And all of a sudden, here in chapter four, of course there wasn't chapters then, but here towards the end of the letter, what had been general, general direction, all of a sudden becomes very personal and very particular when you hear all of a sudden, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. You wonder if they were sitting there and they suddenly picked their heads up. Like, wait a second, he's talking about me here. And so Paul is talking about these two women who obviously have, have some kind of disagreement. They've, it's something that is public. The church knows about it. And, you know, this kind of direct uh, public rebuke is very rare for Paul. You don't see him singling out people with specific instruction. He only really even does it one other time in all of his writings where he writes to uh, Aristarchus and says, you know, complete your ministry. But here he is rebuking these women who have obviously disagreed. They've fallen apart. Something has separated them. And Paul doesn't say what it's about. He doesn't mention what the issue is. Because really, for Paul, it's not a matter of right and wrong. Paul doesn't say, you know what, Euodia, you really owe Syntyche an apology. He doesn't say that. He doesn't pick sides. He just recognizes that there is a problem, that there is a conflict that needs to be resolved. He, we know that they are believers. He says these names are in the book of life. We know that they are co-laborers with Paul. That, that For whatever that means and for whatever that looks like, that these women have exercised leadership, that they have exercised uh, help in Paul's ministry where he can say that they have labored side by side with me as I've been laboring for the gospel. But something has happened. I think it speaks to these uh, women's spiritual maturity, knowing that they wouldn't just hear their names being read in this letter and get up with a huff and a puff and walk out and never come back to church again. Paul recognizes that these are mature believers. But something needs to happen here in, in their lives. You know, this, it just brings up the importance of, of recognizing things that are important. Recognizing the importance of the gospel. He said, these women have labored side by side with me in the gospel. And you know what? I'm not saying who's right or wrong here. He's not listing the issues He's saying, look, we need to agree on the gospel and then you need to give grace and patience on everything else. Don't, don't insist on your own rights. Don't insist on being the right one. Don't insist on having the last word. He says, no, you guys need to put all that behind you because there is a greater mission at stake. We have a gospel mission to carry out and we can't do it 
with you two in disagreement and in conflict with each other. The church here was to aid in this reconciliation. He, he identifies uh, someone, he says, true companion. There's been some debate about who that might be, uh, and we don't really know exactly. But the importance is the church was to help this reconciliation happen. The church wasn't to take sides either. They weren't to wait to be invited by these two women to step in. They were, they were meant to, to step in, to insert themselves and say, hey, what do we need to do to bring the two of you back together? Because the only hope for the church is to stand firm, like Paul says in verse 1, stand firm. The only hope for the church to do that is to do it united, to stand side by side. If you've ever been, and we all have, if you've felt uh, in conflict with another believer, and it weighs you down. If you're not careful, if that continues over a long period of time, bitterness grows in your heart. You become more and more calloused, more and more bitter to this other person. And man, that's, that's the opposite way to be joyful. So I think we see in these first couple verses, if we want to be joyful, if we want to live joyful lives, the first thing we have to do is we need to live in unity with one another. But that's not the only thing. I want you to see number two, not only live in unity, but if we want to be joyful, we need to trust in God's presence. Trust in God's presence. Let's look at verse four through seven. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I mentioned earlier that the idea of joy and the idea of unity have run through this epistle. Paul here says in verse 4, rejoice. Earlier in the book, chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then here in verse 4, he's saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say. If you didn't get it the first three times, here it is again. Rejoice. And this is a command. And notice, notice the word always. Rejoice in the Lord always. One commentator would look at this and say, this is really, joy in Philippians is a defiant nevertheless. Yes, this is true, but nevertheless, I will rejoice. That's what Paul is talking about here, and that's why it can be a command. Notice that it's not, be happy. He doesn't say be happy. Happiness is an emotion. Joy is a state of the heart. Joy is a centered habit of the heart. And for a Christian... It should be our normal posture in every situation. Paul knows something about this. Remember, he's writing this letter from prison, encouraging the church to rejoice. In his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Even in the midst of sorrow, there can still be rejoicing for the Christian. That's what... What the Bible says when it says we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. There are certainly times to grieve. 
where it's right to grieve, where the Bible says weep with those who weep, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. In our grief, in our deepest grief, in our deepest pain and anguish, there is still a silver lining of rejoicing for the Christian. And that's what Paul says here, rejoice in the Lord always. But it's not just rejoice always, it's rejoice in the Lord. We remember what God has done in the past. We recognize what God is doing in the present. We trust and hope for what God will do in the future. And all of that causes us to rejoice. That's what Nehemiah meant in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, where he said, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Man, when you feel weak, when you feel tired, when you feel beaten down, when you feel confused and depressed, find strength in the joy of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And the next verse might seem a little strange. He says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This word reasonableness. It's a little bit of a strange word. You might have a note in your Bible, like I do, that says it can also be translated gentleness. I think that makes more sense to us. This, this word is used five times in the New Testament. and The other four times it's used, it is translated gentle. We see 1 Timothy chapter 3. This word used, and it's saying gentleness is a requirement for pastors. But then in Titus chapter 3, verse 2, the same word is used to say gentleness is not only a requirement for pastors, but an expectation for all Christians. It's expected that we are to be gentle. This is how Jesus described himself. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. You want to be like Jesus? What would Jesus do? Jesus would be gentle. Gentle forbearance. This, this is the opposite of being contentious, of being easily provoked and easily angered. It's the opposite of self-seeking. It's something that looks outward. We are to rejoice in the Lord, and one of the outworkings of rejoicing in the Lord is that, if man, if we find our joy in the Lord, we can exercise gentleness with everyone else. But then he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. What does he mean by that? The Lord is at hand. I think he means Christ's nearness causes us to rejoice. Knowing that Christ's nearness causes us to be gentle and patient with others. And then just in the next couple of verses we're going to look at, Christ's nearness calms our worries, calms our fears. It's good for us to remember that the Lord is at hand. And so that's why in the next verse, he can begin by saying another command. Do not be anxious. You start to feel the weight of what Paul is commanding here. First, he commands rejoice always. Like, oh, and that's hard, Paul. You don't understand what I'm going through. And then he says, oh, and not only rejoice always, but, but don't be anxious. We should battle worry just like we battle any other sin. You might have, we all have, sins that we struggle with, that we battle with. And that's, that's one of the signs of our ongoing sanctification, that we battle with sin. Our desire is to defeat sin. And worry, hey, maybe for you, that's what you need to be battling. If you find yourself prone to worry, Look at what Paul says here. Do not be anxious about anything. Man, worry weighs you down. Worry forces self-centeredness. 
which gives you less bandwidth, less ability to look outside yourself to serve others. Worry distracts you from mission. Yeah, Jesus talked a lot about worry in the Sermon on the Mount, in the great passage there. He, he says several times, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, about your body, what you will put on. And after comparing them to the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, he says, your heavenly Father knows what you need. You don't need to be anxious. But instead of being anxious, what do we do? We pray. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In, in prayer, we express our trust and our dependence on God. To take time to kneel, to close our eyes, to come before the Lord and saying, God, I don't know what to do, but I'm laying this at your feet knowing that you can handle it. And then in thanksgiving, we accept that everything that comes into our lives comes into our lives from the hands of our good and faithful and loving God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. A lot of times when, when bad things happen, even if it's a small bad thing, we always say, why is this happening to me? Like, seriously? And in prayer, we have the answer to that. Why is this happening? Well, because my Heavenly Father knows that I need this. And I don't want this. I wouldn't have asked for this. But my Heavenly Father knows that I need this. And look at the result. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. This means it's beyond explanation that only the work of God can explain it. You look at someone going through intense suffering and you wonder, how can they be faithful? How can they be steadfast? How can a woman who just lost her husband stand before the Lord in worship and praise the very next day in church? It surpasses all understanding. It's only God. This idea of the peace of God. Is, is something that's, that's so important for us to understand. Jesus said, John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You remember how Jesus greeted his disciples when they were huddled together in the locked upper room after his crucifixion? They didn't know. They, did, they were scared. They didn't know what was going to happen to them. They didn't know what was going to happen to to everything that they had learned and believed and, and they're huddled together there in the upper room and Jesus just appears in the room and the first thing he says is, peace to you. Your hearts are troubled right now. Peace to you. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus himself is our peace. That he doesn't just bring us peace, that he doesn't just give us peace, but that Jesus himself is peace. At the end of the book of Romans, Right at the end of that great theological book, Paul tells the church there, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What an encouraging thing. And as he's still talking specifically to Euodia and Syntyche and then to the rest of the church there at Philippi, it's important that we see that peace isn't just a feeling. He didn't want Euodia and Syntyche to feel at peace with one another. He wanted them to be at peace with one another. 
And this peace, Paul says, will guard our hearts and our minds. To guard, to protect a target from attack. Not to numb us, not force us to ignore or deny the realities of our present situation, but to impress upon us the truth of the reality that whatever happens, we are in Christ. That he is with us, that he is good, that he is faithful, and he's working all things for our good. We've introduced a new song here recently. It's called Christ Our Glory. We did it this past Sunday. We're going to do it again on Sunday. And there's a line in it that says, Be still and remember the worst that can come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. And for Christians, we know that's true. The worst thing that can happen to us will just hasten the time when we can be with our Lord and our Savior. So we not only live in unity, we not only trust in God's presence, but number three, we obey God's commands. Let's look at verses seven and, or verses eight through 10. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul lists a lot of things here. I want to go through them quickly and briefly. But he says, first of all, whatever is true. John 17, verse 17, we know that your word is truth. As Christians, we have a standard, an objective moral standard, one that does not change with the times, one that does not change with the whims of our society or our culture. We stand under the authority of the Word of God. What is true is what the Bible says is true. Not only that, but whatever is honorable. This is personal moral excellence. This is the idea of, of dignified. In fact, the other three times it's used in the New Testament, this word is translated dignified. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. The idea of justice, so important in our culture today, so important every day. Doing the right thing, but not only doing the right thing, but doing the right thing in the right way. Whatever is true, honorable, just, whatever is pure. This is moral purity, sexual purity, but also just the idea of of being sincere, being untainted. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and commendable. These words are interesting because neither one of them are used anywhere else in the New Testament. But the idea of loveliness gives us this this idea, this picture of, of that which is morally lovely, of course. But also, I think that that is uh, what is aesthetically lovely. This is the idea of, of God's common grace. That we recognize God's handiwork and the beauty of creation and the beauty of a song. We can recognize God's loveliness everywhere. And that which is commendable, that which someone can speak well of. And then he says, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This word, think about, he's saying, ponder. Not just let it be passing thoughts, but really, really think about it. Give weight to this. This is like when I was in school, I hated the subject of math. And I would always have to to sit down. Most of the other schoolwork came, 
relatively easy for me, but math never did. And math always took me just sitting down and focusing and really pondering each and every stupid problem. And that's what he's saying here. Ponder, think about these things. And then he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So not just ponder, not just think about, because that's important and you have to start there, but actually practice them. Because until you've practiced them, you really don't know them. You might think you do. You might say that you do. But until these things start to work themselves out in your life, you, you really don't understand them or know them. So this, this passage causes us to ask the question, where is our focus? Are we focusing on those things that cause anxiety? Are we focusing on those things that cause us worry? Are we focusing on the doubts or, or the failings of other believers that we are in conflict with? Where is our focus? Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. How does this renewal happen? Well, the psalmist said, Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. We hide God's word in our heart. We meditate on it. We memorize it. So that in times of temptation, in times of struggle, in times of conflict, in times of, of anxiety, we can pull on this well of God's word within us to encourage us and to keep us following God's commands. That's the idea of, of what Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where he said, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Those fleeting thoughts that come through your mind that you're tempted to meditate on, to just, just spend some time thinking about, to fantasize about something. He says, no, take every thought captive to obey Christ. And then look, he reminds us once again, the end of verse 9, and the peace of God, or the God of peace, will be with you. It's important for us to, to remember God is with us. We tend to forget God in, in good times, and we tend to believe that God has forgotten us in bad times, don't we? We're going through hard times and we say, well, God, why, why have you left me alone like this? The psalmist asks those questions. Why have you forgotten me, God? God hasn't forgotten us. As we practice these things, the God of peace will be with us. As Christians, we not only eagerly await the return of our Lord, but we take comfort in the fact that he's always with us. That while we are here on this earth, we are to behave as citizens of heaven, because that's who we are. We are to live joyful lives in this world. That's what this world needs. There's so much pessimism and cynicism and anger and angst in our world. How countercultural it would be for there to be a community of believers to live joyful lives that are expressed in unity with one another, that are expressed in rejoicing in the Lord, casting our cares on Him, trusting that He is with us, and actually obeying God's commands. What would that look like? That would look like a redeemed community, a community that will point people to Christ. I hope that's true of you and me. I hope that's true 
of our church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder that you are always with us. Lord, help us to remember that when we want to doubt it, when we want to doubt your presence, when we want to doubt your goodness, when we want to question your faithfulness, God. Remind us of all that you have done and cause us to hope in all that you will do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.